Well, I'm so glad that you uh, tuned in for week three of its history. So put the past behind you. If you missed the first week, we talked about those things, those sins, those rumors, those labels that tend to define us. And God says, that's history. That's not what defines you. So don't let those labels have any authority to define you any longer. And then last week, we dealt with a really healing message. We looked at why we should forgive someone who has hurt us and how do we actually go about doing that. Next week is Mother's Day. So we're going to take a pause in our series and just focus on mom on that Sunday. But the following week will be week four of this series. And we're going to be looking at how to overcome our personal failures. You know, a lot of us have sinned against God. Or maybe we've made not a huge mistake, maybe just a simple mistake. And we know that God has forgiven us, but we're having a hard time forgiving ourselves. We're having a difficult time overcoming our own set of failures. So I hope you'll plan to be with us over the next coming weeks. Today, I want to talk about an important biblical principle. Let me illustrate it this way. If I were to ask you, Has anyone ever lied to you or disappointed you or betrayed you or hurt you? Most of you, it wouldn't take you very long to answer. Absolutely someone has done that to me. But what if I were to ask the question this way? How many of you have done one of those things or something similar that actually affected or hurt another person or a group of people? You see, a lot of us would be a little more hesitant to admit that, at least, at least quickly, like we would the other question. It's easy for us to play the part of the victim. It's not as easy to play the part of the offender. That's why we hear so many messages about how and why we should forgive those who've hurt us. But it's much more rare to have a talk about owning it when we're the one who's hurt the other person? And how do we exactly deal with those offenses to make things right? Well, that's what we're going we're gonna to talk about today. And I want to do that by taking a look at what the Bible has to say. And then I want to talk about what to do when we're that person who has hurt someone. When we're the person who's wronged someone else. If you have your Bible, turn to Matthew, the fifth chapter, verses 23 and 24. Jesus is in the midst of teaching a powerful message. We know it as the Sermon on the Mount. And he's in the section on relationships when we, when we hear him say this. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar... In other words, if you're in the temple or in our context, you're at church and you're ready to offer your offering to God, to make a gift to God, he says, and there you remember, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you. In other words, right at that moment, you remember that you've hurt someone. You've let them down. You've offended someone. You lied to someone. You did something wrong, and you did it to someone else. And then you go to worship, 
and you're there to worship God, and you remember this person who you love, they're not happy with you. In fact, they're, they're wounded by you. They're upset at you. And your relationship isn't the way it should be because of what you've done. Jesus is saying, if you remember that in this moment, while you're ready to give God your gift, he says, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Leave it. And then he said, first, before you give your gift, he says, go. Now that word go is interesting. The Greek tense of that verb implies an intense action. In other words, it might mean that in order to go, you're going to have to travel somewhere. Or you're going to have to work hard to go, to do this. Or you're going to have to overcome some obstacles as you're going to go. But he says go, even if it's a challenge to get there. And then he says, first go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. I can't think of another time in Scripture where the Bible says there's something that takes priority over our worshiping God. But that's what this does. Before you worship God with your giving, first go and reconcile yourself with that person who you've wronged. Why would God want us to stop worshiping him in order to go and make amends? Well, let me show you this video, and maybe this will give you some understanding of what we're talking about right here. Jaden? made the mess? Hey. You know, Billy did? Come here, I want to talk. Were you throwing stuff over the side? Nice. It's sugar, you know that, right? <laughs> Justin! What are you doing? Mommy's going to be very upset. <laughs> yeah, you. What you guys did. Callie, what did you do? What did you guys do? I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Why did you let her do that to you? I didn't see you. <laughs> what are you doing? Huh? Tatum, what happened to you? What were you doing? You don't know? What are you doing? Playing with the toilet. What are you doing to Addison? Uh, uh -uh. <laughs> what did you do with your stickers, Brayden? In these clips, you see these kids, and they've all done something wrong. Now, maybe it was innocent, but they've created a major, major mess. And that mess creates a disruption in the harmony of, their, of those families. They can't act like there's nothing wrong. They've got to address it. And it'll take some serious effort to make the necessary repairs to fix what these, these children maybe even innocently did. And in many ways, that's what God is saying to us. Don't come in here and do your little church thing, lift up your hands and sing out your heart 
if your world outside of this place is wounded because of you. Don't tune in to take notes or go to your Zoom Sunday school class. Don't do your religious thing when you're not loving those in your world, not working hard to bring reconciliation to your relationships in your life, those relationships that you've created hardship for, you've caused damage in. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Think about that. Blessed are the peacemakers. He didn't say blessed are the peacekeepers. He said the peacemakers. And there's a real difference between peacemakers and peacekeepers. What do peacekeepers do? Peacekeepers elude conflict to keep peace. They try to avoid it at all costs. They want to avoid confrontation. And it's not bad to be a peacekeeper. I mean, it's not, it's not the worst thing. I mean, to be a troublemaker would be far worse. So a, peacemake, a peacekeeper isn't that bad. But he's saying, don't be a peacekeeper. And here's why. That's what some of us are in our relationships. In essence, we say, let's not fight about it. Let's not talk about it. Let's just pretend like everything's okay. Let's just fake it. We all deep down really know that this relationship isn't the way it's supposed to be, but I don't want to fight about it. I don't want to go through the difficult stuff in order to fix it. So let's just, be, let's just keep being peacekeepers. You know, they say we sweep a lot of things under the rug around here in the, in the hills of Kentucky. That's where those hills came from. All the stuff that we keep sweeping under the rug. It just builds up. Well, Jesus is saying, quit being peacekeepers. There's something far better. He said, be a peacemaker. Peacemakers embrace conflict to make peace. So Jesus is saying, go, before you offer your gift, go and initiate a conversation. Engage with that person. Try whatever it takes. Apologize. Do whatever it takes to fix what you broke. Even if you have to work through some real difficult stuff, things, things that you caused in order to make the peace. I know this may come as a shock to some of you, but every so often, Ann and I, my wife Ann and I, will have a disagreement. And you know, when we were first married, and I want you to know, I got her permission to share this with you. I'm not a fool. When we were first married, Ann didn't argue. She was more of a negotiator, you know? She was more like a diplomat, trying to broker peace. But over the years, she's kind of changed. And now, when there's a disagreement, she'll speak up. She's going she's gonna to make her case. Anne doesn't just uh, sit back and try to keep the peace. No. She's a peacemaker. She's not afraid of conflict. In fact, she'll take it on in order to gain peace. Every once in a while, we will have a fight. And eventually, that fight will come to the point where Anne comes crawling to me on her hands and knees and says, why don't you come out from underneath that bed, coward, and fight like a man? She doesn't say that very often, but occasionally she makes her point. 
in all seriousness, Ann and I have both committed ourselves to working whatever the conflict is out. We're going to work toward a solution. We're not going to go to bed angry. We're going to wade into the conflict in order to work it out. Let's be peacemakers, willing to endure conflict if that's what it takes in order to make peace. Now, the nemesis of peacemaking is pride. Don't elbow somebody sitting next to you or give them an eye or say, listen up, I'm sure God is wanting to speak to you right now. But the nemesis of peacemaking is pride. But the best friend of peacemaking is humility. You show me any relationship where there's a lot of tension most of the time, and I'll show you two people generally who are two people who are very proud. They'll say, I refuse to apologize because I didn't do anything wrong. And they'll make their case as to why they didn't do anything wrong. So I don't have to say I'm sorry for this because I didn't do anything wrong. Oh, I may have done a little thing, but you did a big thing. And if you hadn't done what you did, I wouldn't have done what I did. So I'm not going to be the one to apologize. At least I'm not going to be the one to apologize first. And it's a power struggle. In situations like these, there's always three sides to the story. There's his side, and there's her side, and then there's the truth that has a side, and usually it's somewhere in the middle. Maybe it's his way one time, or it's her way the next time, but it's somewhere in the middle. With pride, what you'll find in almost every ongoing relational struggle is that there's not just one person at fault. Almost always, there's two people at fault. I don't care if the other person is a colossal jerk on steroids. If you're part of the problem in some way, you should own your part. You're not responsible for how that other person responds or what they do or what they say. You're responsible for what you do. The Bible says this in Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And I think that is especially true for those people in our lives who we love. If you're the person in this disagreement who's responsible for only 1% of what was wrong, if you're that person, you still need to own that 1%. So you apologize for that small piece, that 1%. And just for the record, And this is really helpful. This is a great tip to all the men who are watching right now. I've been married for a few years, and I've learned a couple of things. And one of those things is this. Never use percentages when you're having these kinds of conversations. Oh, you might think it's logical to say, maybe I'm responsible for 1% or 2%. But you're guilty of 98% of the problem or more. So I would officially like to say I'm sorry for the tiny insignificant 1% that I'm guilty of. And I'm wondering what you would like to say right now about the colossal amount that you're responsible for. Oh, it might sound logical in your head, but that never works out well. So take that to note. Seriously, humility, humility on the other hand says, I'm responsible 
for this part of what's wrong here. I actually have been wrong. And I'm going to be faithful before God. And I'm going to honor you and humble myself. And here's what happens when you do that. When you humble yourself, you elevate the relationship above yourself. And even if you feel like you're right, and sometimes you will be, what you do say when you do this is, I love this person more than I love my right to be right. How much could God do in a heart like that? How much could God do in your heart if you would take pride out of it and replace it with humility? And by humility, God could make you not just a peacekeeper, but actually a peacemaker. And how much better would your relationship with that person be? So first go and do what you can to fix what you broke and make things right. Now let's talk specifically about how to apologize with integrity. You see, there's a right way to apologize and there's a wrong way to apologize. Don't ever say, I'm sorry if I've ever done anything that hurt you. I am sorry. Because that's not an apology. That's a cop-out. Or if you say, I'm sorry that you feel that way and you got your feelings hurt, you big fat baby. That's not an apology either. That's just being a class A jerk. Don't do that. Let's talk about the components. There's five of them that go into what I think is a vital apology. All right? When you apologize, component number one, take responsibility for specific actions and attitudes. Get specific because there's something very healing when you say, here's what I did. And then you name it. It's really important. I'm, I'm really sorry I yelled at you. Or I, I, know, I know that I lied to you, and I need to tell you that. I, I shouldn't have done it. I'm so embarrassed, and I'm humiliated. I'm sorry I lied to you. Or I should have called. You didn't need to worry. I, I put you through way too much. I'm sorry I didn't call. Or I gave in to my lustful desires. And I did something that was heartbreaking to you. I hope you can forgive me. I am deeply sorry. I'll do everything in my power to earn back your trust. You should be very specific when making an apology. Now some people say, but I didn't do anything. But the truth is you should have. There's something that you should have done. You should have responded. You should have, you should have leaned into it. Some people need to apologize for what they didn't do. Honestly, it's often what you didn't do that warrants you giving an apology. Theologians break our sins into two categories. The first category is sins of commission, sins that we've committed. The second category are sins of omission, these are things that we should have done but didn't. And by not doing them, we're actually committing sin. I'm convinced that there are so many relationships that would have been healed if we would just apologize specifically for what we didn't do. I'm sorry I didn't protect you. I should have stood up for you at that point. 
I hope you can forgive me because I should have stood there on your behalf. I'm sorry. I was so busy working over all those years, I neglected our relationship. You deserve better than that. I am so sorry. One night, early in my career as a young minister, following an elders meeting, I went with several of the staff guys to get something to eat. And the meeting ended late in the night. And so the only place that was open in town was Waffle House. Well, this was before the era of cell phones. And so I didn't bother calling my wife to let her know what I was doing. And after being at Waffle House for for a while, I just happened to look up out one of those big plate glass windows, and I was really surprised to see my wife standing there with her winter coat on over her pajamas. And she gave me that look. You know that look. That look that said, this is not going to end well for you. She was looking right at me, and then all of a sudden, she just turned on her heels and left I wasn't sure if I'd seen a ghost or my actual wife. Well, I, I didn't quite get home when she did, but I got there shortly after her. And she said to me, why didn't you call me? I woke up and you weren't here. And so I called your office and there was no answer. And so I went out to church to see if maybe something was wrong and your car wasn't there. And now I started to panic and then I, I started to think, where, where would they go? Where would he go? And so I went to Waffle House, and there you were. Why didn't you call me? And you know, truthfully, I didn't even think about it. But in that moment, I apologized to her, and I said, I will call you from now on. I am so sorry for not calling you and causing you all of that unnecessary grief. Apologize specifically. The second component when you apologize is don't make excuses. I think this happens gazillions of times in millions of relationships. A wife asks her husband, for instance, hey, could you do these few chores to help me out while I run these errands so that when I get back all this stuff is done? And he says, no problem, and promises her he'll take care of everything while she's gone. And then when she returns, she finds that not one of those chores is done. And so she looks at him and she asks, why has nothing gotten done? And what he does is he pushes back. And he says, I'll get it done. Just back off. I mean, I mean, seriously, I needed a little bit of time to relax. Do you have any idea how much stress I've been under at work? And by the way, Why is it that if I don't do exactly what you say, you have to nag and nag and nag me? Listen, own your mistake. You promised that you'd do those chores or whatever it was. And maybe you were lazy just for that moment. You're not lazy all the time, but in that moment you were. So stop making excuses and just apologize. I'm sorry I let you down. I didn't follow through. But you can count on me to get those things done. No excuses, period. Now, a wife might say to her husband, you know, the reason I spend so much, the reason the credit cards are, are getting a workout is because, well, 
you're just really, really cheap and you never buy me any nice stuff. That's not an, that's not an apology. It's not even a really good explanation. It's an excuse. Maybe you should say I spent so much money because truthfully I got carried away and was foolish. Kind of materialistic. I'm sorry. No excuses. Admit to specifics and don't make excuses. Well, the third component when we apologize is accept the consequences. When someone sins against someone else or they hurt them or they betrayed them, often there will be consequences and you need to accept those consequences. If you gossiped or you lied about your best friend, and your best friend is a little slow to trust you in the future, you need to understand that's partly your fault. That's one of the consequences of your lying or gossiping. Or if you're a teenager and you drive home under the influence, you're over the legal limit. You're what people would say is drunk. And your parents just happen to be there to greet you when you come in the house. You apologize You tell them you're sorry. They accept your apology. But then they take your car away for three months. Here's the truth. Don't be a baby about that. You need to recognize that's the consequence for your behavior. You're lucky it wasn't six months because you were reckless while driving under the influence. Losing your car is the consequence to that behavior. Several years ago, I knew a woman who had an affair with her boss. Her husband was a friend of mine, and he learns about this affair, and he is devastated by it. The wife is desperate to save her marriage, and she tells me and she tells him she will do whatever she has to, but her husband doesn't trust her at work where this co-worker is. So she quits her job. It was a great job, but that was one of the consequences of her behavior. Part of apologizing is owning the consequences. This is the right thing to do. I'm sorry, and I take full responsibility for what I did. Accept the consequences. Well, Then after you apologize, there's a fourth component to the apology, and that is change your behavior. You did something wrong, and it hurt that person who you love. You need to change that behavior. Don't yell and then apologize and say, I'm sorry, I yelled at you, and then five minutes or five hours later, yell again. That doesn't help. Change your behavior. Get help if you need to. Get some counseling if it's necessary. Get with some other Christians in a life group, a D group, a a Bible class. Ask them to pray for you and to hold you accountable. But when you apologize, also change your behavior. It brings us to the fifth component of an apology. When you apologize, you should ask for forgiveness. Don't just say, I'm sorry, but add to it some of the most powerful words that are spoken in this language. Some of the most powerful words that speak to the very heart of the gospel. Say, I'm sorry, Will you forgive me? I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? 
Probably one of the best examples I've seen of this in a long time happened in one of the most unlikely places. It happened in the world of professional baseball. On June the 2nd, 2010, at Comerica Park, the Detroit Tigers pitcher Armando Galarraga was pitching. Now, Galarraga was a young pitcher who was slated to actually be sent down to the minors shortly after this start. But that night, he retired the first 26 batters that he faced. He was on the verge of making baseball history. See, only 20 perfect games that had been pitched at that point in the history of baseball. And he was one batter away from becoming the 21st perfect game pitcher in Major League history. And then this happened. Watch this. 26 up, 26 down. Here comes number 27. It's Jason Donald and a crowd of better than 17,000 to its feet. The guy we've been waiting for all night. Ground ball, right side. Cabrera will cut it off. Galarraga covers. He's out. No, he's safe. He is safe. He is safe at first base. And here comes Jim Leland. Joyce said he was safe at first base. You make the call. Cabrera, Galarraga. He missed the base. He's out. Why is he safe? He must have missed the base. Are you kidding me? Why is he safe? You see right here. Why is he safe? Oh my goodness, Jim Joyce, no! Oh, jeez, Louise. Oh my goodness. What a travesty. What an absolute travesty. For Armando When umpire Jim Joyce saw the replay after the game, he surprisingly told reporters, I just cost that kid a perfect game. By baseball standards, such an admission is extraordinary. You see, baseball umpires are paid to make calls in split-second times, and then they stand behind those. But this moment was different. Jim Joyce apologized to Armando Galarraga, and we are entering now into some very unfamiliar territory in professional sports. When Galarraga forgave Joyce, adding that the umpire probably felt worse than he did, and then said, nobody's perfect. We were witnessing something extraordinary, not just in baseball, but in all of life. You see, the victim of one of the craziest injustices in the history of the Major League Baseball League went out of his way to comfort the umpire who was responsible for the mistake And the umpire was humble enough to ask for forgiveness. It's an unforgettable moment. And it's a great example to you and me. And it reminds us we should ask for forgiveness too. 
I was told a number of years ago by a surgeon that when a bone breaks, it heals stronger at the point where it was broken. That can also be true about relationships. If we're willing to wade in and make peace in those tough areas, it may be painful. You see, some of you, you've broken a relationship and you're part of the reason why that relationship is still not healthy. You caused that break. If you will do your part, it can be fixed and it can actually be stronger than it's ever been. First, you have to go. Don't wait. I'm going to finish this message here in just about a minute. And when I do, I want you to immediately go and do what the Bible says. Take responsibility for your part of what's broken. Now, you can't control the response of the other person, but you're going to trust God with that other person. And I want you to know, I've been praying this week for you and for God that he'll take these broken relationships and he'll heal them and they'll be stronger than ever before. So take some action. Make peace. Let's fix what's broken. Let's take responsibility for what we've done. I want to thank you for joining us today. I want to remind you that next Sunday is Mother's Day. So maybe invite mom to join you to our digital worship service. I'm not sure how that would work, but maybe there's a way you can work that out and spend some time with mom through worship next Sunday. We want you to know we miss you, and we are actively planning right now to prepare for when we can be back together again. Though, we want you to know we're gonna continue these online services as well. So, until we see you, We want to wish you God's very richest blessings. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in with us today. Be sure you're staying connected by following NCC Lex on all social media platforms. Also, if you'd like more information on what it means to be a follower of Jesus, drop us a message on social or just shoot an email over to notes to at nccleks.org. You guys have a blessed week and we'll see you soon.